we were having dinner or something and there's a soldier sitting at another table and he starts sh- shouting at us. He heard the name Bahmut and he said, I can tell you about Bahmut. I'm from Bahmut. And uh, he starts saying stuff. And I said, okay, I can translate. And he says, who are these guys? And I'm saying, you know, these are foreign journalists. They want, you know, to learn about what's going on here. And he says, oh, so they, they're, you know, maybe they're spies. So I'm going to cut, cut your heads off right now. I'm going to use my knife to cut your heads off. And I'm like, okay, I don't think we should talk to this guy. I think we should, you know, go. So we start to leave and he starts shouting. He uh, gets up and he starts, you know, cursing us all the time. He says we're whatever, whatnot. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my knife now and I'm going to cut your heads off. And when we go out, he starts following us and shouting that he's going to take his knife from his room and he's going to cut our heads off. So we go to our rooms and I go to the, uh, the, the barmaid and she says, we called the, the military police and they're going to take him away now. And uh, when I was talking to him, when I was sitting with him, uh, usually the, the problem guys are the, the ones who, you know, come back from the front line and they drink a lot of alcohol. They're called avatars because they're blue, you know, just like the, uh, the film. Uh, so they call them avatars. But this guy, he, he couldn't smell any alcohol. So usually when these people drink, you can smell the vodka, you can smell anything, but you could see his eyes, his pupils were dilated, but he hadn't had anything to drink. And I can see that there was no, you know, no vodka or anything else on the table. So this guy had something. And uh, if we hadn't gone, the situation could have gotten very bad because he could have tried to hurt us, hurt the journalists. Uh, He could have gotten his knife and tried to cut our heads off. I think that would not be a problem for him. I've never been to war, and so it's hard to imagine what it's truly like to experience that camaraderie and hardship, the violence and the horror of battle. All the way back in ancient Greece, there was this story about an Athenian soldier called Epizelus, who fought in the Battle of Marathon. The story goes that in the middle of the battle, he suddenly and inexplicably lost his sight and was eventually dragged from the battlefield, never regaining his vision. In modern times, this incident has thought to have been a form of conversion disorder brought on by an extremely traumatic experience. Others are able to continue despite the extraordinary experience they're going through. But what this story, the soldier near Bakhmut, tells us is another not often discussed side of warfare, and that's drug use. From drinking to taking synthetic drugs or smoking weed, It's what some do to cope, to fight better, to stay awake, to survive. As one of the people we talked to in Ukraine put it, when you're sitting in a trench 50 metres from your enemy, you need to stay alert and more or less calm. Sometimes for several days at a time, the human body will break down without some assistance. So it's either stimulants like drugs or death. For a lot of soldiers, the choice is obvious. Death can wait. So in this episode, we're going to stumble through the thick fog of war and focus on the use of drugs in Ukraine during this conflict and shine a light on those supplying this trade. This is Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. And this is... Death can wait. 
drugs on the front line. After months of preparations, the Russian President Vladimir Putin has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. Мною прийнято рішення по проведенні спеціальної воєнної операції. For weeks we have been warning that this would happen. And now it's unfolding largely as we predicted. Армата! That invasion is an affront to our collective conscience. It is a violation of the United Nations Charter and international law. Slava našim zahisnikam, slava našim zahisnicam, slava Ukrajini. In July 2022, a couple of senior Russian lawmakers came out with a somewhat interesting response to the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. It was first reported by Business Insider, and the deputy speaker of Russia's Federation Council, a man by the name of Konstantin Kosachev, claimed that after experiments on captured Ukrainian soldiers that extremely dangerous diseases and substances were found in the tested blood. This line was then taken up by Irina Yaravaya, the deputy chair of the State Duma, who said that Ukrainian soldiers were taking performance-enhancing drugs that neutralized the last traces of human consciousness, which turned them into cruel and deadly monsters, before blaming the US for creating a cruel murder machine. But needless to say, no actual evidence was provided. But aside from these baseless claims, it did make me think about drug use during conflict. There is a long history of it. During the Second World War, as the German army swept across Europe at lightning speed, the troops were supplied with a methamphetamine called pervitin. Later in the war, Allied forces were supplied with an amphetamine called benzedrine. The Japanese used the methamphetamine philippon. In 1971, the US Department of Defense released a report which claimed that during the then ongoing Vietnam War, 51% of US Army personnel smoked cannabis, 31% used psychedelics, so things like LSD or mushrooms, and then 28% used things like cocaine or heroin. By 1973, up to 20% of soldiers had become habitual heroin users. Alongside this, the military supplied soldiers with things like speed, steroids, and painkillers to help them deal with extended combat. And then during the civil war in Sierra Leone in the 90s, the then government of Liberia, led by former rebel-turned-president Charles Taylor, armed child soldiers with weapons, incidentally from former Soviet stockpiles in Ukraine, and then either injecting the child soldiers with cocaine or cutting their arms or heads and rubbing cocaine powder into the wounds before letting them loose on civilians. And then more recently, the Syrian civil war spawned a huge multi-billion dollar industry based around the amphetamine Captagon, which is largely controlled by people connected to the regime of President Bashar al-Assad and the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah. Captagon has become the number one export in Syria. With this criminal industry valued in the billions of dollars, some are now asking if we are seeing the rise 
of a new Middle Eastern narco-state. Anyway, you get the idea. Now in this episode, I don't want to necessarily focus on the drug flows that have in the past made their way to and through Ukraine. So this means things like the northern route for heroin or cocaine from South America. There is time for that in another episode. But in this episode of Deep Dive, I wanted to focus on the drugs on the front line specifically. What drugs are being taken and who is behind this illicit trade in the most dangerous of environments. So the reasons for a soldier to take drugs are numerous. Maybe it's to deal with trauma or maybe it's a form of stimulant. In the cold light of day, to organise crime, this looks like an opportunity. A huge, new potential market. There is a new market in Ukraine right now, and it's a market directed at the military. So there's a drug market that's specifically targeted at the military. This is Ted, an investigative journalist from Ukraine who has been to the front line many, many times. There are several sort of parts of this market. First part is, of course, the legal drugs, the medicines you get on the front line. Some of those, uh, you know, medicines, they, they have drugs in them. So whenever they come to the front line, whenever uh, they arrive at the front line, usually uh, they're used up in days, if not hours. That's what we were told by the law enforcement people or uh, people who, who have been to the front line, soldiers. So they were saying, you know, whenever this comes in, it's supposed to be used as, used as a painkiller, but they use it as drug. That's number one, okay? The second part is that overall the population has become poorer, but the military are now the people who get a lot of money. So for those fighting for the survival of their country on the front line, they are rightly paid well and get up to $3,400 per month. And obviously those of a more senior rank get more. But to put that in context, the average salary in Ukraine in January 2022 was 400 US dollars a month. So this is considered a wealthy part of the population now. And of course, where there's money, you get, you know, business involved. So you get drugs on the front line. Over the past few weeks, we've seen a number of arrests of senior politicians and military on corruption charges. Now, corruption in Ukraine is not new information. For years, Ukraine was considered one of the most corrupt countries in Europe. Indeed, in 2014, the investigative journalist Oliver Buller described the Ukrainian state under former President Viktor Yanukovych as run like essentially a criminal enterprise. Corruption was cited as one of the reasons for the Maidan revolution in 2014, which forced Yanukovych from power. And although the Ukrainian state has made progress in tackling this issue, progress that was recently recognised by Transparency International when Ukraine actually rose in the Corruption Perceptions Index standings. But there is still a long way to go and we've got a few episodes planned on this topic in the future. But the reason I wanted to briefly touch on corruption is that for drugs to move around in an active war zone with the military checkpoints all over the place, it means we have to ask some tough questions about how the drugs get there. So if we understand that there's a whole market, there's a whole inflow of drugs to the front line, the logical explanation would be that, of course, the military are part of the problem. The military let these guys get the drugs to the front line. I think that is a huge problem. 
And because we remember the 2014 uh, smuggling stories and stuff like that. So without the military, the drug problem in the East or on the front line, in the South, in the East, wherever, it would not have existed. So the military are part of the problem. So they get their share. The most interesting thing is that this drug group, it actually has its roots in Russia. So the guy who runs it is Russian. This drug group actually has its roots in Russia. And the guy who runs it is Russian. This sentence really piqued my curiosity. This is partly what I love about this work. You speak to the right people and you get the information you weren't expecting. Who are this mysterious group running drugs up and down the front line and who is the Russian that apparently runs it? Organised crime is a fascinating topic to look at and study because in a lot of ways it's like a puzzle. The nature of the business is that it's clandestine, hidden from view, conducted in the shadows. So the information we have can be fragmentary and needs to be slowly pieced back together into a coherent picture. And so when looking at Ukraine and the drug use on the front line, we started hearing about a sort of monopoly on the military drug market. It's a large group that actually controls and has monopolized the market on the front line. And also in the east. So if you, if you take the Kharkiv region, which is part of the fighting zone, but it's a huge region, but it's solely controlled by this group, what we're told. They also control everything that has to do with the Donetsk region, with the Luhansk region, partially the Zaporizhia region. So that's like half of the front line. They control that market. Uh, of course, if, you, if you've ever been to the east of Ukraine, you would understand that there's a whole system of checkpoints over there. And you can't get to the front line if you hadn't passed uh, at least like five, six checkpoints. From the evidence we've gathered from a variety of sources on this group, it indicates that it's a relatively young transnational organized criminal group who started life on darknet marketplaces. And they're known as Himprom, translated from Russian as chemical industry, a rather inconspicuous but fitting name. Back in April 2022, the Justice Department in the United States dropped a press release. In it, they announced that alongside the German Federal Criminal Police, they'd seized the world's largest and longest running darknet market, known as Hydra. Well, a major bust on the dark web. The largest and longest running illegal marketplace in all the world is shut down. Officials in Germany made that announcement today. The operation part of a months long effort with the US Justice Department. The illegal marketplace called Hydra Market. Officials say it's a Russian language site on the dark web. They say it sold illicit drugs, counterfeit currency, stolen information and hacking services. This market had been operating since 2015 and according to the US Department of Justice, accounted for an estimated 80% of all darknet market related cryptocurrency transactions, which again they estimate to be 5.2 billion US dollars in crypto. In its last year of operation alone, according to the blockchain research company Chainalysis, Hydra received $1.7 billion worth of cryptocurrency which accounts for over 75% of all darknet market revenue globally. Now, I won't go into too much detail about this marketplace, but will say that Hydra was mainly marketed at Russian-speaking nations, 
and the usual services were available, money laundering, stolen financial information, fake IDs, but also illicit drugs. And that's where Himprom come in, because Hydra was just one of the darknet marketplaces they operated on. For the simple reasons that in 2014 Himprom appeared as such, they began to work actively in Russia. This is Sasha, not their real name or voice for that matter. Given the subject matter, I think you can understand why they wish to remain anonymous. The first time I came across any mention of their activities was at the end of 2016. So I'm inclined to assume that they became active in Ukraine in 2016. At the same time, there was a dark web marketplace called Hydra, which also expanded and began to work extensively in Ukraine. So Hydra originated in Russia, but expanded into Ukraine in 2016. And it was at this point that Hydra, given the size of this darknet marketplace, became a really important market for Himprom. But as we heard before, Hydra was shut down last year, so where else do they operate? Well, after the behemoth of Hydra was taken down, we saw a pattern that's evident when any of these large darknet marketplaces get taken down. Whether it was Silk Road, Alpha Bay, or in this case Hydra, the site users and the traders scattered, jumping to another upstart darknet marketplace, hoping that it provides the same level of competence and user experience as the previous one. And there is certainly no guarantee of that. Anyway, let's get back to Himprom. They deal in a number of different illicit drugs, but it's synthetics that are particularly popular. They mainly sell the so-called best salts or PABs, designer or synthetic drugs. These are alpha PVP group Mephedron. They also sell hashish, that is weed cones. However, weed-based drugs take up a much smaller percentage of their sales than salts. They also sell cocaine. However, according to the information that is now coming in, their cocaine sales have dropped substantially since the 24th of February 2022. So now they are concentrating mostly on salts. What is surprising, although generally quite clear, is that they do not sell the so-called speed, which is expensive to manufacture. This includes stimulant drugs like amphetamine and methamphetamine. It's strange because drug dealers tend to make money on everything. But these people are the exception. On the other hand, speed is more expensive to produce than salts. So this is how they optimize their business. Now let me just stop here and talk about one of the illicit drugs Sasha just mentioned, Alpha PVP, also called Alpha Pyrolidinopentiophenum, or something to that effect. It's a synthetic drug better known as Flaca. It appeared on the scene a few years ago, and I know parts of South Florida had some run-ins with this substance, and it was dubbed the zombie drug by some in the media. Yeah, it's called Flaca, and police say it literally makes people go insane. It can cause delirium, where the body's temperature can rise up to 105 degrees, but people on Flaca may also experience hallucinations, paranoia, anxiety, insomnia, and even violent aggression. If you go online, there are plenty of videos that reveal why it was given this name, but I should give you a warning, they are not easy to watch. Alongside Alpha PVP, Himprom also produces other bath salts, 
Now these are synthetic cathinone drugs. And these human-made drugs are close to the naturally occurring substance cathinone, which is found in the cat plant. The leaves of which can be chewed, releasing a mild stimulant, and cat is particularly popular in East Africa. Back in 2019, the SBU, the security service of Ukraine, seized a drug lab outside of Kyiv. This lab was reported to be able to produce over 200 kilograms of synthetic drugs every month. Six people were arrested, including two IT staff who supported the operations of more than 40 members working across Ukraine. And as Sasha said, drugs like alpha PVP and other bath salts are cheap to make and Himprom are making them on Ukrainian soil. They produce salts in Ukraine. The bigger part of what they sell is being produced here in this country. The laboratories I knew of were located in the Kyiv region, not far from Kyiv, to the north in the suburbs. They say that there are also laboratories in the Dnepropetrovsk region and several laboratories in Odessa. In the Kyiv region, the town of Brovary is often mentioned in this context. As for cocaine, they hardly ever sell it now. And when they did, it wasn't produced here. And as for hashish, that is weed, yes, that is grown here too, but they also make purchases in approximate 50-50 ratio. Some of the weed is produced here, cultivated in grow boxes, and some of it is imported from abroad, from Asian countries. You see, before the conflict, Ukraine was a source, consumer and transit country for a load of different drugs. Heroin travelling the northern route from Afghanistan or cocaine from Latin America arriving in the port of Odessa. Like, for example, in late 2020, when 112 kilograms of cocaine were discovered in Odessa, hidden in a container of bananas from Ecuador. But the conflict has changed the flow of cocaine. For example, Russia has blockaded the ports of Odessa and Mykolaiv, making shipments like the one I just mentioned much more difficult. And in addition to that, cocaine is expensive and some of the wealthier clientele have left the country, causing the price to actually drop by up to 25%, according to some. Saying that, there is obviously still a market, albeit small, which leads me down a very quick diversion. There was one story that was shared with me back in January. It was of a 46-year-old man in Ukraine who was arrested for drug dealing. MGMA, amphetamine, ecstasy, but also cocaine. And the drugs he sold were packed into acorns. You can't fault the ingenuity. Now, one of the other drugs that Sasha mentioned was weed or cannabis. A recent report from the GI called New Frontlines, Organized Criminal Economies in Ukraine in 2022, talks about how cannabis is, I suppose rather unsurprisingly, the most used drug by soldiers. Which brings me back to a story that Ted told me of one encounter he remembers well. I was in Kramatorsk, which is one of the, uh, the main city actually right now under Ukrainian control in the Donetsk region. So that's very close to the fighting. I'd say it's like 60 kilometers from the fighting zone right now. So pretty close. It's been shelled often, I think lately more often than before. So uh, there's this gas station there, and it's not actually a gas station, it's, it's a restaurant. It's the only one of the few restaurants working in the city. And it's all covered in, uh, in sandbags, and you go in and you have you know, pizza, whatever. 
So there was this guy in there, soldier, and he heard that we're journalists. So I was with the journalist crew and he heard we're journalists and he said, I can tell you a story. I can tell you lots of stories. So we said, yeah, of course. So I went to him and I kind of recorded the interview we had. And so he told us that, you know, he was at the front line. So there were 28 of them. Uh, they lost 15 people. So, you know, but they destroyed three Russian tanks. And I could see that he was, you know, he was kind of jittery all the time and he wasn't actually normal, so to speak. I, I, you know, I thought, you know, it's from the nerves. It's because of the fighting. And he said, if you, if you want me to show you this place where I was, I can take you there on my tank. And I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> uh, I don't think we're going to use your tank. And he said, no problem. We can use a car. We can use a truck. You know, the things he was, he was saying, they were really interesting, but kind of unbelievable, so to speak. And so we said, okay, let's meet tomorrow morning. You can take us to this place. We'll use our truck. We'll use, uh, you know, our, our Jeep. And then we had an officer come over with two guys and they say, oh, this is Sasha. You shouldn't, you shouldn't listen to him. And I, I said, why? Because he's, he's had too much grass. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so he comes out, this soldier comes out together with his officers and two soldiers. And they start just, just smoking grass just near the, the restaurant, near the, the sandbags, so to speak. And they said, do you want some? I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, uh, it's just a common thing, I guess. But that was a year ago. Himprom's main markets stretch across Eastern Europe. They are known to sell into Poland, Romania, Moldova, Hungary, and of course, Ukraine. Prior to February 2022, they operated in Belarus and Russia. But the wars changed all that, just like it's changed drug production, particularly that most popular of drugs, cannabis. Currently, we have problems with electricity in Ukraine, and the grow boxes consume a lot of electricity. They use powerful lamps, and in the first two to three months, the wheat must be lit continuously. There should be no interruptions in lightning, even for an hour or two. Naturally, they began to have troubles. As far as I know, there were attempts to move grow boxes grass farms to regions where there were fewer problems with electricity. First of all, to western Ukraine. And before the problems with electricity began, farms were also created in the south of Ukraine, mainly in Mykolaiv, Odessa regions, and partly in Dnepropetrovsk region. If you were to buy some drugs from Himprom, you'd never actually meet a Himprom dealer like you would another street-level gang. They operate in the more discreet method of stashes. You communicate through messengers, Telegram is especially popular, and pay for the drugs. Someone then messages you a location where your order has been stashed for collection. This is called the drop-off method. It keeps the transaction more anonymous and safer for those involved, particularly the person who stashed the drugs. So aside from the stashes, who else makes up the structure of Himprom? Naturally, this is a closed organization. It is not easy to count the number of employees working for Himprom. I can only tell how many people hold senior positions in the organization, those who are responsible for certain activities, certain flows. I'll do the math now. There are 12 people in total. Each of them is in charge of one specific area of activity. For example, they have a separate department for recruiting. It is run by women for some reason. 
One is recruiting the stash makers and the other is looking for dealers, picking up stuff for the stores. They have their own security service. They are literally gunmen. They have a financial department. One sub-department deals with illegal financial transactions, while the other is responsible for legal or, shall we say, quasi-illegal financial activities. Their job is money laundering. Now, the Institute of Psychiatry, Forensic Psychiatric Examination and Drug Monitoring of the Ministry of Health of Ukraine wrote in 2020 that Kimprom staff numbered around 1,000 people. This number was provided by a guy called Pavlo Demchina. At the time, he was the deputy chairman of the SBU. Well, I'm not sure about that number, but they certainly operate in a lot of places. And as Sasha said, there are 12 identifiable departments of Himprom. I find this particularly interesting when you learn more about groups born out of the online space. For example, modern ransomware groups will essentially have a customer service department, often much more effective and efficient than traditional customer service operations for legitimate businesses. Darknet marketplaces will often have customer and seller dispute departments like any other online marketplace would. They are structured very much like a business, albeit with nefarious intent. I mean, I'm not sure how many legitimate businesses have a gunman service, for example, or sever the fingers of employees, for want of a better phrase, for using their personal phones at the workplace, a form of brutal discipline alleged by the now former deputy head of the SBU, Pavlo Demchina. In that same report from the Ukrainian Ministry of Health, I mentioned before, they observed that Himprom not only used the darknet marketplaces, but also had an extensive network of chatbots in the Telegram Messenger for cryptocurrency with subsequent cash transfer and money laundering in Ukraine. This is a professional outfit. So back in 2019, the SBU embarked on a nationwide raid targeting Himprom. According to Pavlo Demchina, Himprom had moved the base of their operations to Ukraine after a crackdown in Russia against the group. And now it was the turn of the SBU, who reportedly conducted 82 searches, later claiming to have taken down the leadership of the criminal organization. But Sasha told me that these raids had not taken down the Himprom leadership. They are still operating. But what they did find, alongside gold, cash and weapons, was something much more interesting. They found him Prom's accounting books. And according to these books, after all expenditures had been taken into consideration, Himprom had a profit of around 20 to 25 million US dollars a month. And this money has to be laundered. They use crypto to launder money, but there are more effective schemes. For example, they buy real estate in UAE or Turkey at the stage of excavation for, let's say, $10 million. The title is registered in the name of Figurehead. Then they wait for two or three years. When the object is built, its value increases from nominal 10 to at least $30-$40 million. Accordingly, they sell it at this discount. This is how their money laundering scheme works. Given Himprom's presence online, it's hardly surprising that they use crypto as a form of money laundering. Hydra as a market offered sophisticated money laundering services on the marketplace itself, as did some of its vendors. 
It's thought that this is a reason why the marketplace became so popular. Then of course crypto exchanges that have little to no anti-money laundering controls, like Russia-based exchange Bitslato, which was seized in 2022 with the co-founder arrested earlier this year. The US Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco alleged that Bitslato and Hydra formed a high-tech axis of crypto crime. 700 million US dollars in direct and indirect transfers traveled through Bitslato during a four-year period. And this is just one exchange. And then you have real estate, which is a classic for laundering illicit funds. And Sasha mentioned the prominence of the UAE for Himprom in this, which is really interesting because according to the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, foreign individuals and companies have invested over 145 billion US dollars in Dubai's housing market. And people connected to Europe and Russia own more than 31 billion of this total. Anyway, given the fact that Himprom have a financial department, I'm sure they don't struggle to find ways to launder their illicit gains. So what about those at the top of Himprom, the leaders we've alluded to? I guess the best place to start would be with an arrest just a couple of months ago of a man called Alexander Shipsov, sometimes called Alexander Yashin, and sometimes also called Alexander Pachersky. Now, if you read around, it's not easy finding information about this guy. He is a Russian who also has a Ukrainian passport, which is controversial in its own right, and we'll come to that in a moment. But we do know that Shipsov was wanted by Interpol. Shipsov is not the leader. He is one of them, but not the top dog. And it's hard to imagine how Himprom will change with Sheptov's arrest. Although, of course, this is interesting. He was detained in December 22. Not so much time has passed to see the dynamics, whether it is bad for Himprom or not. Nobody knows how all this will end. I do not rule out the possibility that he will not be extradited to the Russian Federation. According to Sasha, Shipsov was allegedly in charge of the Ukraine department of Himprom. So he's at a senior level, but not the man at the top. It's alleged that his job was logistics, so getting precursors from Kazakhstan into the Himprom labs in Ukraine. At the time of recording, these are only allegations. Shipsov has not been convicted in a court. Now, if these allegations are substantiated, it begs the question how law enforcement allowed Shipsov to live quite openly in Ukraine, when, as it's alleged, he was a senior member of Himprom. And so I had to ask this question to Sasha. Did law enforcement not know? And Sasha was quite clear in the response. Corruption. They had to have known. And one of the ways Sasha backs this corruption allegation up involves an application for a passport. There is an application form for entering information to the Unified State Demographic Register. I have a screenshot of it. It reads, I, Pechersky Alexander Konstantinovich, ask to enter to the Unified State Demographic Register the following information about myself. In connection with the registration of a passport of a citizen of Ukraine to travel abroad. This is an application form from the internal database of the Ministry of the Interior. Here we have a passport series and number. It's this guy, Shepzo. It says 
when the passport was issued by the Kolosinski Department of Internal Affairs. Registered in Kiev district, town of Brewery, he lives on Nezalezhnosti Boulevard. If he executes and receives such documents, the question of corruption arises. Those who allowed him to do this are well aware that Mr. Pechersky Alexander is the same Mr. Shepsov who is wanted by Interpol. How could they not have known? I think the answer is obvious. I think it's more likely that they knew. Here's a vivid example of corruption. So the controversy here is that Shepsov, who had managed to get an internal Ukrainian passport, kind of like an ID card, all Ukrainians over 16 have one, Now, to leave the country, you have to get a separate international passport. You need one of these to legally leave the country. But to get one, you have to have an internal passport. Stay with me here. The controversy is that at this point, Shipsov was wanted by Interpol, and the authorities knew that he was wanted by Interpol, and yet ignored that fact. Hence, the accusations of corruption. Here's Ted. Traditionally, here in Ukraine, uh, drugs have always been sort of overseen by law enforcement, by the police. So the police usually knows where they're made, just takes its share of the profits and lets the, uh, the guys work. But they always have a sort of uh, plan on how many drugs they need to seize every month, every week, every year. And they usually do that, but not more. That's the problem. So Shipsov is not the overall leader of Himprom. There are thoughts on who that person could be, and it's assumed that they operate the business not in Ukraine, but remotely from an entirely different continent. Finally, back to Ukraine. I want to ask Sasha the million-dollar question. How are Himprom able to move drugs around the country, given the conflict and the control on the movement of goods by the military? Remember what Ted said earlier. There's a whole system of checkpoints over there. And you can't get to the front line if you hadn't passed uh, at least like five, six checkpoints. So I'll put this to Sasha. Indeed, they smuggle drugs to the combat zone. However, I know nothing about the distribution scheme. It is quite clear that they don't use stashes on the front line, which means they must have created some sort of a dealer network. However, at this stage, it is difficult to understand exactly their selling scheme in the combat zone. At the same time, in cities that are close enough to the line of contact, such as in Mykolaiv, Zaporizhia, the servicemen also buy drugs. They do it following the regular scheme, meaning they buy online while being given the location of the stash in question. An interesting press release from the SBU came out in late September last year in which they talked about the circulation of narcotic drugs, psychotropic substances amongst the population of frontline areas, and that the common channels for the delivery of drugs and psychotropic substances to combat areas is through the use of postal operators. In August 2022, law enforcement intercepted 15 kilograms of different drugs, and that's just in one month, and only what was found. I'm often reminded of something a colleague of mine once said to me, and that's that seizures are just a glimpse in time. A seizure indicates that a particular substance was at a particular place at a particular point in time. It's not a true indicator of the true scale. But the question of how the drugs move up and down the front line 
remains elusive, and it's something we'll keep monitoring. And it's interesting to see that this conflict, like many wars before it, has an illicit drug component, and that organized crime, ever innovative and ever corrosive, finds a way to adapt, operate, and even thrive in the most difficult of environments. That's it for this episode of Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'd like to thank Ted and Sasha for speaking to me in this episode. For more information on Ukraine and the impact of the war, there will be links to a couple of papers from the GI in the podcast notes. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get it. Also, the podcasts are now on YouTube and have a great little animation to accompany each episode. This has been Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening. Thank you.